0: So we're, we're looking at um, the whole Easter thing and the last two weeks we've looked at people that Jesus met on his way up to Jerusalem. So he's on his final journey to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to get crucified. He knows it's going to happen. He knows, he knows he's, he's basically, um, you know, it's death row. He knows, he knows, he keeps predicting to the disciples I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to be raised again three days later. He keeps keeps going through this, so he knows what's going to happen, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And we looked at on the first week how he insisted, against his disciples' wishes, on hanging out with the children. He loved the children. He wanted to be with the children. We looked at the whole thing of childlikeness in the kingdom, that you haven't got to be clever to be in with God. You haven't got to be, um, you know, mature. Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it. And we just spent a bit of time there meditating on that and um, what it means to be childlike. And then last week we looked at Bartimaeus, the blind man who who really pressed through lots of opposition and barriers in order to get to Jesus and get healed. And we looked at the persevering nature of faith and um, and really just all, all, all the all the glory surrounding that. This Sunday is what is traditionally known in the Christian calendar as Palm Sunday, um, and next Sunday is Easter Sunday. So we're going to look at those. We're going to look at those two things. Palm Sunday is really talking about when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. What happened? It was very dramatic and it was very controversial as well. Um, and so we're going, to, we're going to read what happened when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and we're going to just spend our some time there. And then obviously Friday, for those of us that are there, Parliament Hill, we'll look at the crucifixion and then next Sunday the resurrection. So what I've done with the story of the triumphal entry is I've merged all four gospel accounts together. Because, as, as is normally the case, you find that some bits add certain things in there. Someone's looking at it from this angle and draws in a little conversation that happened there. So I've put Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all together just to get a richer kind of feel for what happened. Are you ready? Yes. Are you sitting comfortably? Yes. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a cult tied, on which no one has ever sat. This took place to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the Pharisees said to one another, Look, the world has gone after him. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So it's very dramatic. There's opposition, there's praise, there's the whole city being stirred up because Jesus is coming. Now what you've got to realise is in the Gospel story there's lots of subplots and what we've got here is two subplots coming together to really bring us to the main plot. So the first subplot is inside Jerusalem and really what's happening there is the storm clouds are gathering. Two miles away from Jerusalem is a village called Bethany at Bethany, there lives Lazarus, Martha and Mary, their siblings, a family. Lazarus died from an illness. Jesus, just before coming to Jerusalem, raised him from the dead. Now, word began to get around and Lazarus began to go around telling his story. There are people like that today. There's a man called Ian McCormack. We might try and get him to church one day. He's a man who was stung five times by a box of jellyfish. Now, one sting is enough to kill you. If it's stung five times? Went to, got taken to hospital totally unconscious and died, medically died. And then, I think it was, I haven't heard his story for a while, but it may have been, it was a fair time afterwards, Was came back to life. I mean, it's all recorded medically. But he speaks of his experience while he was dead and the things that... The things really that are in the Bible but that he actually experienced in terms of the weight in place and some of, the, some of the issues. He wasn't, he wasn't with the Lord and, and it was, so it's what you might call a death experience rather than a near death experience. Well, Lazarus was just the same. He'd been dead four days. What did he experience? What was it like? I don't know. But he seemed to have become quite a popular man to visit and find out. And what was happening was loads of people started believing Jesus when they heard his story. They were saying, this is amazing. He brought you back from the dead and there's witnesses everywhere. And so many started getting converted. To the end, that the religious leaders in Jerusalem not only started plotting how to kill Jesus, but how to kill Lazarus. So they want to kill him again, poor man. He already died once. They want to get him again. So that's what we've got going on. The storm clouds are gathering, the tensions are high. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, um, just after the triumphal entry, he goes into the temple, looks around, then goes out, stays a night on the Mount of Olives, comes back, makes a whip of cords, and clears the temple, turns over the tables. basically ejects the money changers and says, you know, this is terrible what you've done in this holy place and... Obviously the religious leaders are looking on and thinking, what authority has he got? And they begin to send people to question him, really just to try and trap him. They question him about John the Baptist. Was he from God, wasn't he? They question him about paying taxes to Caesar. And really they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to find a way where they can catch him, but his wisdom is too much. And so in the end, the whole time they're asking questions, they're finding out a way of how can we do what we really want to do, which is get him him killed. And so they manage to find a a mole among the twelve. Judas Iscariot and they, they work out a deal with him, pay him 30 pieces of silver and Judas Iscariot leads the soldiers up into the Garden of Gethsemane and there's an arrangement, there's a deal made, Judas says, the one I kiss, that's the one because, you know, if Judas could have said the one who's floating above the ground with blonde hair and blue eyes, that's the one, but it wasn't Jesus, you see, he looked normal, he was a normal guy, he fitted in, and so Judas says it's the one that I kiss, that's the one you need to arrest, that's Jesus of Nazareth. Very normal. In fact, the Bible says he wasn't particularly handsome. There was nothing about him physically that would make us think, I want to follow him. Normal man. So it's really it's dark, it's cloudy, it's moody. And then you go outside of the city of Jerusalem and it's the complete opposite. What you've got, you've got the common people that have either been healed, delivered, raised from the dead, or have had relatives healed, delivered, raised from the dead, or have been fed. Um, like this story Davina said earlier, have, have been fed when they were in crowds of thousands, where there was just a few loaves and fish, and they've really, they've really, there's a sense of wanting to follow Jesus, excitement, buzz, it's like, wow, we're with the prophet, we're with Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, it seems like he would gen, generally, most of the time, would, there wouldn't just be 12 people following him, but often there would be literally maybe up to 10,000 behind him. It was that kind of a movement. People were coming from nations all around to follow him. They were hearing about it and his fame was immense. and There was this excitement, there was this kind of radical devotion, there was this amazing praise as he comes into Jerusalem. So you've got the, the Jerusalem thing and, 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 and this outside Jerusalem thing and you've got these two worlds were about to clash. So it's very dramatic and it's very, very tense. And what we see in this story is what's called the triumphal entry. And really, the beauty of it is, is it's prophecy unfolding before our eyes. If you, you could just read that and think, that's a nice story. Jesus on a donkey, it looks kind of nice. But there's a lot more to it than that. It's, it's, what it is, it's prophecies that have been spoken, one of them 1,400 years before, the other one 800 years before, being fulfilled before their eyes. I want to just talk you through this so you get a sense of what's going on here. And so you, get, you think, man, I, I didn't realise it was, it was as big as this. In Psalm 118, We've got a celebration of God's steadfast love, we've got a celebration of the Lord being a saviour, a deliverer, of of the Lord being someone who rescues his people out of difficulties and out of pressures and out of trials and listen to what it says. The Psalmist says, I thank you, you you've answered me and you've become my salvation. Remember that phrase, you've become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, what's that? Well. It's referring to Jesus. Fourteen years, hundred, 1,400 years before he was born, it's referring to Jesus, this stone. And the builders, those who think they're building God's temple, they look at him and think, nah, not, surely not the car, carpenter, nah, not him. But it says, actually, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvellous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Listen to this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, do you remember that? That's what they were shouting when Jesus was coming in on the donkey. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What are they saying? They're saying it's the stone. This is the stone that the builders have rejected. We know, that we know people are against him. He's often having to go off to hide because people are trying to kill him. This is the stone the builders have rejected, but he's going to become the chief cornerstone. And, and so what it is, you see, these people, they, they know their Bible, they know their scripture. They're, they're, they're singing this psalm. So the amazing thing is you go back 1400 years, you've got this psalmist and it's like he's got his prophetic telescope out and he's watching the triumphal entry and he's thinking, wow, I've got to record this. Things are being revealed. He's seeing this rejected man. Really, somehow, come in and representing salvation. And he's seeing people going crazy, singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So he's recording this, he's writing this down. And we're seeing the glories of God's salvation opening up. Then we go to Zechariah, which is a prophet 800 years before Jesus came. Listen to this. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation remember that he is humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey 800 years before Jesus came Zachariah saw it he's got his telescope out he's like he's being let in on something to come in 800 years time he sees this mysterious regal figure sat on a donkey I mean I don't know if you realize this that kings didn't normally travel on donkeys it would have been a chariot or a horse, a, a war horse. It, donkeys, were the, they were really the, the beast of burden that the poor used. It was very much they were the last option. Okay, okay, it's nothing, let's get a donkey. And Jesus deliberately says, go into a village, you'll find a donkey, untie it. If they question you, just tell them, I need it, it's okay, I'm going to bring it back. And he says, I want, because Jesus is saying, I want you to, I want, he's communicating something here. I'm the one Zechariah was talking about. It's me, your king. So he never actually says, I'm the king, but actually his whole actions are saying, I'm the king. I want you to know that. It's prophetic actions that Jesus is doing. He's righteous and he has salvation. What about the palm branches? You might just think, well, maybe they were the nearest tree. No, they were significant. You first, you see them in Leviticus 23, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. What was that? Well, the Jews had loads of feasts to celebrate God's salvation. One of them was the Feast of Booths. And what would happen is for seven days they had to go out, imagine this, they had to go out and find branches and leaves and and shrubbery and make homes for themselves and live in it for seven days. That's what they had to do. It was the Feast of Booths. It was seen as a celebration. Some of you don't, don't like camping are thinking celebration, house made of sticks. What's the deal? Here's the deal. God had brought them out of Egypt, you know the story probably, Moses, the Red Sea opens, uh, it all represents salvation, he brought them out, and then they had to travel through, through the wilderness, 40 years, and during that time they lived in sort of tents. Now I don't know about you, but I tend to think, tents, okay, you know, sort of like, you go to decathlon or millets, that sort of thing, it wasn't like that. They were sort of, obviously they were kind of sticks and stuff, it was that kind of deal. And so what God says is, after he brings them through the wilderness, into the promised land, they've got lovely homes, they've got beautiful fields, pastures, God says, I want you just seven days for the year to live in a stick house, to remember where I brought you out of. It's a way of remembering who your identity is, what I brought you from, but it speaks of God's salvation, because the reason they were in the wilderness was because God had saved them out of the world. So it's reminiscent again of salvation. He says this to them, you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in the booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. God's saying, don't forget. Don't forget your salvation history. Don't forget what this is about. I saved you. So live in a stick house for seven days. It's vivid, isn't it? Yeah? You're going to get the hump for the first few hours and you're going to start thinking, well, OK, we we're going to for seven days, what should we do? And you start meditating on what God has done, what God has brought them out of. But it's more than that. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Crying out with a loud voice, listen to the key word, salvation, belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's that word again, salvation. Salvation, it keeps coming. That's what palm branches represent. And then there's one more thing, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? I'll tell you what Hosanna means. It means, oh save! That's what it means, Salvation. It can mean it in terms of adoration. Oh, you've saved me, thank you. Or it can mean, oh, it can mean, oh, save me as a prayer. Either way, it's an exclamation and it's saying, you're basically saying, this is salvation coming in to Jerusalem. This is salvation. Interesting. do you know what the name Jesus means? He saves, salvation, God saves. It's all about salvation. Jesus is saying this is all about your salvation. Me coming in, your king is here to save you. The problem is this though. The Jewish people didn't understand salvation. They thought it was going to be political, military. You get people like that today. They think that the answers are in the, the politics. You get the politics right, everything will be alright. Mankind will be saved. Now obviously politics are important, but you don't save people through politics. Or military might. Well, if you can just subdue a certain nation and you know just keep them quiet, then everything will be all right. Well, we've been reading your papers about China and Tibet. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. There's there's, there's bubbling things under the surface. It's, it's you can't save. You can't bring real peace through military or political means. But the Jews, they saw it. They like they thought the Messiah, the Saviour, he would come. He would rout the Romans and then he would establish them again as the chief nation among all the nations. And even the disciples missed it. But that's not how salvation works. And I, I, I think one of the things is we sing about salvation so much. I guess I want to ask you today, do you know what it means? What does it mean? It's one of those Christian words, isn't it? Like redemption. I remember singing about redemption for years and then one day someone preached about it and told me what it meant. I thought, ah, oh, that's helpful. <laughs> now when I sing about it, I know what I'm singing. But it's kind of one of those words, hallelujah. What does hallelujah mean? I'm, put your hand up if you do know what hallelujah means. Now just, don't, be, don't be ashamed if you do, but I'll just be isn't that interesting. Five percent, ten percent, you all say, yeah, yeah, hallelujah. Well, what are we saying? Hallelujah. Praise. Yeah, the Lord. See, it's simple really, isn't it? But we just we just but we get into Christian language, don't we? Yeah, you learn the lingo. you learn the, sort of, what is it? the the you learn the linger? And we're down with the hallelujah thing, we don't know what it means. What does salvation mean? Well, the Greek word is sozo. And it means, it can mean a number of things. It can mean rescue. It can mean wholeness. That God wants to make us whole. The Bible says we've been made complete in Christ. We're no longer fragmented people. We're no longer just loose bits and bobs, kind of walking around, trying to make sense of life. But we've been made whole. Oh, I know who I am now. There's a sense of, okay, there's rescue. We've been rescued from the power of sin. Rescued from the prospect of judgment and hell. Rescued from a life of futility where worked, you think, is this it? Just getting up? Look at, just trying to make a good life of it? You get brought, rescued from that and brought into it. Oh, I see what it's about now. All things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. I'm, I see. I'm in his purposes now. But you see, this is salvation. It can mean success that God wants to bless the things that we do and and own them and look on them favourably. This is salvation, sozo in the Greek. So, this is what Jesus is representing. And I want to ask you, do you know this salvation today? Do you know it? Do you know the the personally? Not, oh yeah, I've always been brought up a Christian, I've been to church, and I'm not asking you that. Do you know this salvation? Do you know Jesus? Do you know personally that one lives in you by his Spirit who has rescued you out of emptiness, out of darkness and brought you into his purposes and made you whole? Do you know that? Because it's a glorious thing to know. And it changes everything. And I want to just look at a few things about Jesus that are hinted at through his entrance into Jerusalem and then we're going to finish by just loving him some more and praising him. Number one, he's a humble saviour. Jesus preached from a borrowed boat. He had the Passover in a borrowed room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. <laughs> and now he borrows a donkey. <laughs> when he's told to pay the tax, he goes, sends Peter down to fish a coin out of a fish's mouth. Yeah, it, the Bible says he made himself poor so that we might become rich. He who was rich made himself poor. He had nothing. Some of the people who traveled with him really just traveled to support him. He borrows his donkey, it's humble. You think, this is, doesn't seem like, this doesn't seem how it should be. It almost seems a bit kind of inappropriate. of the king, but he's saying something. He's saying, the way I'm going to save you is different from how you expect. This salvation, it's not about ruling the world with some kind of, I don't know, iron fist. It's not about that. It's a different thing. Not, we're not gonna, it's not about sabre rattling and fighting. You remember when Jesus got arrested, what does Peter do? Pulls his sword out, swipes off the ear of one of the servants. What does Jesus do? Heals the ear and says, put your sword away. And says, no, we're not doing it that way. That's not what this salvation is like. Or forced conversions, which the Crusades tried, didn't they? Centuries ago. Well, we're riding, we'll put them to the edge of the sword, either they convert to Christianity or we kill them. That way we Christianize the world. Doesn't work like that. That is not what this salvation is like. I'm sure you all know that. But I'm just saying, look, this is important to realise. something happens in our heart, we are born again. yeah, and, and, and the living sacrifice we become to Jesus is done voluntarily and joyfully because we've seen, wow, you've given yourself for me and you've shown me how lovely you are. What else can I do but give myself to you? That's how it works. It's a humble thing. Jesus wasn't going to accomplish it through exhorting himself, but through being humiliated. It wasn't going to be accomplished by self-assertion, but by submitting to the will of God. You see him weeping or sweating, drops of blood in the garden saying, Oh God, if there's another way, please. He's about to go through what none of us can imagine on the cross. And everything in him is crying out, humanly speaking, run away, find another option. And he says to God, if there's another way, he knows there's not. So you think, why is he saying it? Because he's human and he's desperate. And he knows God can do all things. He knows the Father. And he says, Father, if there's another, please, but not my will, yours be done. And it's this submission. What humility. In fact, what humility that he should be a man in the first place. That God should he who uh, who was um, equal with God should not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He said, no, I'm going to be a servant. Took on the form of a servant. What humility. What humility that the author of life would submit to death. Yeah? The one who created life, okay, alright. This death which is inferior, has no authority over him because he hasn't sinned. But he says, okay, I'll become the sin of the world and death can beat me. You think, What a saviour. What is this humility? This is how he saves. This is how he saves. He's a suffering saviour. And so, how do you receive this salvation? Humbly. You give up all effort saying, I've got something to bring to this, I've got, let's me and you, Jesus, we can work on this together, because I've got a few things I'm pretty good at, and I like this stuff you do. Let's make a no. It's not how it's not how you do it. You admit, I'm a sinner and I'm lost. The only thing I bring to this is my failure. And Jesus says, Okay, you're in. I love you. You can only receive it humbly, it's the only way you can. The thing about the cross is that it it removes every little bit of human pride. It completely removes any grounds for thinking that in some way it might have been okay anyway. No, it wouldn't have been okay anyway. The Son of God had to die for your sin. That's the reality. That's the story. Your sin is that serious that Jesus had to die. Quickly repent. Quickly ask for forgiveness. Quickly put your trust in him. He will completely forgive you and take you into his heart. There is no question. He will save you. But if you've done that and you're walking with Jesus, I want to encourage you to stay in that place. Don't move on from that. Don't think, well, yeah, I've done that and now you can't graduate from it. That's the essence of the Christian life. The cross, the gospel, learning how to walk how Jesus walked and always eyes on him. That's how it works. uh, The humility. That we don't, we, don't, we don't just try to create a kind of life that really just protects us and, 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 and makes us feel like we're good about ourselves in that sense, but that we, we're honest and that we, we humbly, the way we relate to one another and the way we relate to God, that we say, no, I'm going to take that on board. So humbly. Secondly, he's a, first, he's a humble saviour. He's a celebrated saviour. There's a lot of celebration going on here. From those palm, remember the palm branches, from historical sources, palm branches you can read symbolised kind of victory. It was like when you had a battle and you won, let's get the palm branches out, like the flags and the banners. It was about victory. It was about, it was about um, assurance that God had won. And remember the Jewish celebration earlier, now you might find this hard to believe, but the Feast of Booths was, <laughs> was the happiest <laughs> feast. I don't understand it, but there was most likely, uh, maybe they just slept in the thing at night and they just came out and enjoyed food during the day, maybe that was why, but there was a lot of celebration during the Feast of Booths, it was marked, the Day of Atonement was kind of like that sense of man, just a guilt, you know, and an awareness of things we've done wrong, but oh, thank goodness, you know, there's, 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 there's the lamb and all that, but the Feast of Booths was like, whoa, no, we're out, we've been saved, hallelujah, and there was a lot of celebration. I, I want to just say this, we should live a celebratory lifestyle as Christians. It should mark our lifestyle. It should mark our lives. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, yeah? We sh- it's part of it. We should make much of singing. Now, do you know what singing is always associated with in the Bible? Who knows where the first song in the Bible is? Recorded song. Have a guess. Pardon? Then that's kind of like When Eve was made, it's very good. That's kind of the scene that's like some sort of a stanza or some kind of a poem in some way. It's definitely poetic. But there's one other place where it's specifically described as a song and it's recorded. The Exodus. When they come through the Red Sea, Miriam and the girls start doing some some moves and then they put this uh, song of salvation together, the song of Moses. And um, basically, that's the... And what we see is all the way through is that singing and salvation are associated... We must make much of singing. It's a mysterious thing. I don't understand it. Why is it that when I put the radio on and a certain song comes on, I'm in another world? I don't know. I don't know. But I know that there's something of God about it. There's something of God about it. If you read when Saul was being tormented by evil spirits, he got David in, an anointed musician to just play, and the the spirit would lift him, and he would just be restored to a place of calm. What is that? There's an anointing on music and when you couple music together with truth what you get is very, very glorious and exciting and that's why we make much of singing we should make much of eating together feasting together because we're in the salvation we're to celebrate we should make much of living life with a light heart and a cleaned up conscience we're saved, aren't we? we're saved and part of, of, I think, maturing as a Christian is that you become more joyful I'm convinced of it I'm naturally a glass half empty man I am. And I only realised that in the last, I don't know, ten years or so. But it becomes increasingly as you realise, hmm, I get into a negative groove. Now some of you will, uh, will relate to that, others of you will think, poor man, because you're the other one. <laughs> it's fine. Alright, it's been honest. But what I realise is a lot of time actually that God actually is, is, is gently and lovingly, but rebukes me on it. it says, come on. This isn't, this isn't the right outlook. i saved you. I love you. It's, it's kind of melancholic. It's kind of heavy. I don't enjoy it. But you could just kind of, you almost get into it, that's what you do, you know? And it's like, come on, come out, come out. And I feel like Christian maturity should be marked by joy. And I, I'm increasingly joyful. I mean, you might be surprised. You should have seen me before. But, no, I, I am. I, when I'm at home, we've got families, I'm really nice now. So, but, you know, there is that. And I think we, I think we need to be free to just to do that and to say, God, do that in me. The Bible describes Jesus as a man of joy above his companions. He was an example of holiness, he was an example of joy. People thought, I want to be like that. I mean, you don't invite grumpy people to weddings and parties, do you? You just don't. You accidentally forget to invite them, you know. But he would be, he would be there because of what he was like. And I think we mustn't just, it's not some sort of glib thing. It's a spiritual thing. In fact, the Bible describes God as being very happy very happy to save us, very happy to love us, he's a happy God. Part of the word blessing encompasses the sense of being happy and it describes God as the blessed God we need to see it and enjoy it. So how do you receive this salvation? Joyfully. Yeah? And you start as you mean to go on so you get increasingly full of joy. You know, I how does that happen? I don't see how that works. I've always just been a bit, listen, the Bible says we get transformed by the renewing of our minds. Yeah? So our minds get renewed. It's like clapping junctions today, isn't it? I know, but just (laughs) stay focused. (laughs) It's it's renewal of the mind. We get transformed by it. We get changed. Now, I want to say to you, if you're not a Christian, when you become a Christian, Jesus intends to transform you. It won't happen overnight, although some of the things will but you'll go on a journey of transformation. If you are a Christian, I want to say to you, expect transformation. Don't get into that thing of saying, well, yeah, Jesus has changed that, but maybe this thing here that I know isn't Christ-like is just going to stay as it is. No. No. Mustn't get into that. Oh, yeah, my mum was like that. no. Look, hold on. The Bible says if you're in Christ, you've got a brand new family line. All right? So anything you've carried over from your folks and whatever, you just think that's no good. You can be separated from that and walk in the fullness of Christ-likeness. We need to be in confidence of this. And, you know, if you want to talk about this, we'll pastor you through that. But I think we so need to be in an understanding of faith that God wants to do this in us. And increasingly, we will celebrate. And the final thing is this. this is a promised saviour. He's promised. Okay? So we looked at the Old Testament scriptures. God was saying, I'm going to bring a saviour. Here he is. But I want to just point out two other things. The law God gave to Moses. Why did he give the law? Ten commandments and all that stuff, offerings and stuff. It was to lead us to Christ. The reason he gave us the moral law, Ten Commandments, was not so that we could prove how holy we are, it's so that we realise how sinful we are. Yeah? We read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. So you say, okay, I'm going to do that, you know, ten seconds later. God's been moved from the place of affection in your heart and something else has got in. You think, oh dear, well, we'll start again, that's no big deal. Bang, and it happens again. You think, what's going on here? Why is it like this? Do not cover. As soon as you read it, you think, wow, I really want so-and-so's motorbike. I oh, really want so girlfriend, or whatever. You say, oh, what am, what, am what am I doing? And in the end, you think, what, this is, I'm going to lock myself in a room, and you find people have done this, monks, I'm going to just remove myself from everything that could be a temptation, so I can do this law thing, and then they find the problem isn't out there, it's in there. And there's a whole universe in there, isn't there? <laughs> of, of kind of offers, and things, and there's this corruption in there, and it's like, ah, And you end up saying along with the Apostle Paul, who will save me? Who will save me from this wretched body of death? Thanks be to God, who's given Jesus for us. So we get brought out from under the law, and we get joined and hidden in the one, the only one, who's ever fulfilled the law. And all of his blessings and everything that's issued out of his perfect obedience gets accredited to us as a gift. Isn't it lovely? And then there's the ceremonial law. All those offerings, lambs and all this and that, what was that about? It was pointing to Jesus. So as a Jew offered the lamb and the fragrance came up into the nostrils of God, figuratively speaking, as God smells the aroma, it reminds him, interesting language, but it reminds him of what is going to happen in the future, Jesus. So as he smells the lamb, he smells the offering of his son and so he forgives. And so anyone who's ever been forgiven because of a lamb killed is only on the grounds of the fact that the lamb was killed, Jesus. The whole of the ceremonial law pointed to Jesus. He's the promised one. He's fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. I think about 60 of them in the final day of his life on earth. He's the promised saviour. And so, how do you receive salvation? Confidently. This isn't a whim. It isn't just some nice little emotional thing. Now listen, God has promised for centuries this one will come. He has come. He's done it. He's died for our sins. He's been raised from the dead. He's alive forevermore. Hallelujah. And he says, I will not turn away anyone who comes to me. So we receive our salvation humbly, joyfully, and confidently. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let the band come up. <laughs> you and your bladder, mate. Come on. Right, here we go. Sorry, I said in jokes. Fine. I shouldn't have said that. On the internet. Sorry. Right. I'm bad with that. Sorry on the internet, it was an in joke. Um, (laughs) That's right, yeah. I didn't mention any names, so no one knows. Okay. Before we finish, I wanted to just maybe just close our eyes for just a second, just to imagine something. We've got these Pharisees. They're standing on the sidelines as Jesus is coming in, right? Being praised and adored. And they say, Teacher rebuke your disciples this is getting out of hand and they're criticising right they're on the sidelines criticising, criticising they're saying rebuke them Jesus says if they do not praise the stones will cry out because he's the creator and then they say the whole world has gone after him look the whole world has gone after him and I just want to ask you today why stand on the sidelines moaning about the fact that the whole world has gone after him when we can just get on and go after him. Yeah. We can go after him. And we can follow him. And the Bible says, whoever puts their trust in the Lord will not be put to shame, will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Jesus, you are an awesome Saviour. We thank you, you are the fulfilment of all the Old Testament promises. We thank you, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you, Lord, that you, you by so many different means, symbolically and vividly demonstrated that you are the promised one. And I thank you, Lord, that you are happy for us to come to you and be saved. I want to pray for everyone in this room today. I want to pray for those who know you, who love you, that you would draw them after you some more. They would find their hearts drawn after you. They would find themselves singing, Oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would find praise and worship and celebration marking their life increasingly, I pray. Please, God, help us in that, to, to really walk celebrated and joyfully before you. And I pray for anyone here who's never come to know you. They've not known the joy of personally being joined to you. Personally, what it is to be born again, to be, have their heart of stone taken out and their heart of flesh put in. Lord Jesus, thank you. You said, as I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. And as we lift you up through preaching today, the crucified Saviour, I pray you would draw those people to you. I pray you would draw them to you, Lord, and they would find hope and help and salvation. In you, wholeness, rescue, safety under your wings, we pray. Amen.